Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The premier of Alberta, as uh, Alberta starts to head toward its provincial election, as Alberta heads toward its um, provincial election this year, and uh, joining us on the program is the Premier of Alberta, Daniel Smith. Premier, how are you? Well, hello, Roy. Nice to talk to you again. It's good to talk to you. What do you make of uh, 752 and the fact that the RGC, the, the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, has not been declared a terrorist entity under Canada's criminal code? Oh, it's clearly a misstep by the Prime Minister. He He seems to have a very difficult time stepping out and doing the right thing when it comes to those who are a real and present threat to our country and to other and to the, the world security. So I, I think um, you'll find that conservatives are very much in alliance on on standing with those who have who have determined that the IRG is a terrorist organization. It's pretty clear from the way they acted in the subsequent months as we were trying to figure out what went wrong that uh, it should have been done by now and it's unfortunate it hasn't uh, there's so many expatriate and uh, long sort of diaspora of Ukrainians in our country and in our province in particular I know that many are, are grieving today yeah absolutely and uh, we'll be speaking with Michael Chong later on this hour the foreign affairs shadow minister for the conservative party he'll be with us all right Mr. Trudeau talks about just transition Two words you're very familiar with and have responded to. The federal government introducing legislation this year, it declares, will be to help workers in the oil and gas sector, Premier, to obtain training and support to transition into green energy jobs. And Mr. Trudeau argues his government legislation is to assure Albertans in the energy sector, quote, continue to be relevant and needed, end quote. You've responded. What would you like our listeners across the country to know? You know, I think we can find some common ground if we're talking about the same thing. I know that often when people talk about transition, they're talking about shutting down industries. That was certainly the way just transition was used when it was applied to the coal industry. So they never should have used that terminology because I think what it does is it signals that they're looking at having fewer workers in this sector. And I'm not. I'm looking at having more workers in this sector because as we expand out, into the hydrogen economy as we start developing carbon technology to capture CO2 and put it into useful project products or bury it underground, as we're doing bitumen beyond combustion and expanding our asphalt, as we're looking at the need for more petrochemicals, as we're looking at the world need for more LNG, this is not an industry on the decline. It is an industry that is very much going to resolve international issues of energy security. And so the the fact that the prime minister is talking in terms of shutting it down, it's not on. We're just not going to do it in Alberta. We're going to grow. We're going to find a way to reach emissions reduction targets using technology. But we're, we have no intention of uh, following a path that's of decline. All right. Uh, and you're right. The world does need Canada's LNG and oil. The world's made that very clear. That's why Mr. Schultz came to Canada in uh, in August of last year. He wasn't here to come up with some non-binding hydrogen export agreement. We don't have the technology for that. So we do need Alberta's natural gas and oil. Um, You've tweeted, it would be helpful if Mr. Trudeau actually called you. What kind of communication exists between you and the prime minister? That's important. Well, virtually none. I mean, I I did have a courtesy call with him uh, when I first uh, got elected. And I used that opportunity to tell him that we were sending a delegation to COP27, that we were going to make sure that Alberta's story was told on the international stage. I I told him that we wanted to work on using the green transfer mechanism available under the Paris Accord to get credit back here as we exported LNG. I wanted his support on expanding LNG. And I said that we were not hostile to his aspirations to, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So that was my foundational starting point with the, the federal government, which is why it's so irritating 
that they continue to push forward with aggressive legislation without giving us a phone call to tell us what it is that they have in mind. I mean, I'm, I can only meet the federal government partway, but it's very clear to me that they have aspirations to regulate in our area of jurisdiction. It's part of the reason we put up a shield and said, no, we are going to fully occupy our area of jurisdiction, which includes resource development and conservation. And I, I, I think people need to understand that the, the message has clearly not gotten through with Ottawa. I know people think that I've taken a bit of an aggressive uh, position, but it's because we have these constant aggressive pieces of legislation and policy pronouncements that come from Ottawa w- without any proactive engagement with us. That's not what cooperative federalism is supposed to be about. Premier Smith, let me just expand on that just a little bit. And what you said earlier, the Prime Minister is calling on your province on Alberta to use its surplus to contribute to carbon capture incentives. Mr. Trudeau says, and I'm quoting, there's a political class in Alberta that has decided that anything to do with climate change is going to be bad for them or for Alberta. The Prime Minister says uh, provinces with a surplus have a role to invest in their future and in the future of their or your workers in Alberta. A political class in your province that has decided that anything to do with climate change is going to be bad for them or for Alberta. Respond, please. That's just false. I mean, based on what I just told you about the conversation I had with him initially, the the, the issue that I see is that there are certain, uh, I would look at it the other way. If you look at what Quebec has done, their answer has been to shut in oil and natural gas, to confiscate leases, and to determine that they aren't going to develop their resource. I, I have to be mindful that the prime minister comes from Quebec. And if that's what Quebec has done, that's the, appears to be, and our environment minister comes from Quebec, I have to be mindful that that's the framework that they're operating from. We think we can reduce emissions a different way with all of the other things that I had proposed to you. And we are the ones who've been advancing on carbon technology for capture and storage. We've invested billions of dollars in that. We are a world leader in it. And so to act like we're some Johnny come lately to the discussion is offensive, quite frankly. And it suggests to me that the the prime minister isn't even aware of the measures that our companies in Alberta have taken to to be in a leadership role in advancing that technology, which is why they have no business passing legislation regulating an area they know nothing about. So you're going to have challenges when the election rolls around, the campaign rolls around, from within the province of Alberta, as you well know. Do you feel like uh, the federal government, this government currently, is going to be working against you as well, as opposed to taking a hands-off position? I hope not. I mean, I have always said that I'm quite happy to find those areas that we can work collaboratively. And I'll give an example. I mean, next week you'd mention that uh, Germany came calling, looking for help, and the prime minister said there was no business case to export LNG. Well, he has an opportunity next week to make a, uh, to make the right decision when the Japanese prime minister is visiting Canada. He's going to be highlighting LNG needs. He's going to be doing a, a tour of, I think, 12 different jurisdictions, including ours. And I would hope that the prime minister would say, yes, we're willing to work with you. We understand the imperative. We have the resource. We're going to fast track these projects. Because um, if he gives the same kind of answer that he did to the German uh, chancellor saying there's no business case, then it shows me that we've got a a much bigger problem. And I would say we have to remember why it is the federal government continues to um, make these kinds of decisions. It's because they're propped up by the NDP uh, uh, minority party that is acting in coalition with them. And so I think that that's something that Rachel Notley is going to have to answer for. Does she support the, the federal government's along with her federal leaders' aspiration to be phasing out oil and gas jobs. That, I think, is going to be an important part of the next election. And I'm, I can fight that all day long because I know what my answer is. Premier, two things I want to talk to you about. One is health care. We spoke yesterday with the immediate past president and the current president of the Canadian Medical Association, and we received some really tremendous input. I want to ask you about health care for the province. But let me begin with the gun legislation, C-21, uh, the Liberals' gun legislation. Much has been said. More has been written. Claims have been made. Counterclaims followed. The feds are said to be seizing rifles and shotguns from hunters, sports shooters, and ranchers. Mr. Trudeau's government says that's not the case and that hundreds of firearms will remain legal. You've taken steps concerning C-21. Tell our listeners what you're doing, please. What we are doing is very much in sync with what we're seeing in other provinces. In Saskatchewan, in Manitoba, New Brunswick, Yukon, they've all said the same thing, that we're simply not going to enforce the federal confiscation of legally purchased firearms. We have to remember what it is that the public wants. The public wants safe communities. 
They want the flow of illegal firearms coming across the border, being smuggled and ending up in the hands of criminals. That's what they want to stop. They're not interested in going after hunters and sports shooters and collectors who've legally purchased their firearms as some sloganeering or as some kind of public display of trying to address a problem that it is simply not going to address. I would far rather see the prime minister focus on criminal justice issues. I mean, look at what's happened in Ontario. Received a call from from Premier Doug Ford, who's very concerned that you've got this catch and release program that's putting hardened, violent criminals on the street. And now they're going out and they're targeting police officers. That's what the prime minister should be focused on. That's what we're concerned about with the criminal use of, of firearms and weapons. And for him to offer this up is simply a distraction. Um, when the bill came for in initially in May, it did not include long guns. And so for them to now propose putting long guns in is going to put 2.2 million law-abiding firearms owners at risk of being criminals just because of a, a paper change well, in the status of the firearms. Not, not all of them. Not all too none of them. It should be none of them. That's, I guess, the point is that there was no need for this to come in in the first place. And it's a distraction and it's creating an unnecessary fight. My my view is go after the criminals. I I have a lot of capacity to do that, but not go after legally purchased firearms owners. We've had this catch and release program for for decades. We've had a, a criminal justice system, which, well, Correctional Service Canada has had 50, 50 program, 50% in, 50% out. That's been going on for years. So, but you have, uh, you've instructed police and Crown attorneys to not enforce C-21, yes? Yes, we're, we're not going to. The, the federal government cannot tell our law enforcement to enforce their, their, their uh, legislation. That, that, that much is clear. They're, they're now having to look for other mechanisms to be able to enact their program. But no, we're, our policing resources are going to be spent on going after criminals, making sure that we're addressing the very real problem of rural property crime, addressing the very real problem of a gang and organized crime violence in our cities. We're not going to distract our our, our precious policing resources okay. into going after law-abiding firearms owners. Nope. Healthcare. Yesterday, Dr. Olika Lafontaine from Edmonton, the current president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Catherine Smart, the immediate past president of the CMA on this program, talking about a broken system. 13 different systems in this country is what we have. We should have one system that actually works, but we have thousands upon thousands of people whose surgeries have been postponed, who can't get diagnosis. Five, five million Canadians have no family physician. What are you going to do about health care in the province of Alberta. Do you think you could lead the country with a healthcare program and, and initiative that will create uh, momentum for the rest of the country to follow? What, what are you going to do, Premier? I've been watching with some interest about what the Ontario Medical Association has said, and we're already in process on a lot of the, the suggestions that they have, particularly for improving access to, to family doctors, but a few other things. I mean, if I could give some advice to my counterparts in other provinces, I think they should do what I've done already in Alberta and taking a hands-on approach and appointing an official administrator with business skills to go through and work with the management to address some of these pressing problems. The problem that we have right now is that we've set up independent health authorities, but there's very little management expertise, business management expertise within those organizations. And as a result, you've got health ministers who don't have a direct approach in trying to manage the issues as they emerge, boards of uh, directors that are strategic boards that only meet every couple of months. And as a result, we've got a, a system that is clearly floundering and needs some direction. So that's what we're doing in Alberta. We've identified that we want to reduce the amount of time it takes to drop off a patient when they're in ambulance. We want to reduce the amount of time that they're waiting in emergency before they get seen and discharged or seen and admitted. And we are also uh, clearing our surgical backlog. The uh, And I'll tell you one of the things that, that you discover when you do take a hands-on approach. I knew that there were operating rooms all over Alberta that had either been mothballed or never put into service. I asked our official administrator, how many are there? There were 55. So, well, how many of them can be put in, back into service? And he said, quite a few of them. And we've already, uh, as a for instance, one hospital, they needed to, 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 to repair the HVAC system. So they've done that, and it's going to be put back into operation. Okay. Now, these are small incremental changes, but that's what it's going to take. It's going to take a 1,000 incremental changes every single day to be able to get the system performing at capacity, right. and we're doing that in Alberta. Less than a minute. Do you agree with this? Dr. Smart has said on several occasions on my program, the money must follow the patient. 
hundred percent. Yeah. I, what we ultimately, I think, are, have to look at is funding a portion of hospitals on a global budget. That's meaning here's money to be able to manage your emergency functions, but you get more money based on the activity that you perform, based on the knee surgeries you do and the cataract surgeries that, that you do and the heart surgeries that you do. That That's the only way that we're going to get a responsive system. And, and we're absolutely looking at doing that kind of model. I've always enjoyed conversations with our next guest. Very relevant, very much to the point, and something we need to continue to talk about, and that is what happens in our relationship with First Nations, with Indigenous people in this country, and the issue of reconciliation. In June of 2021, Chief Cadmus DeLorme of Cowess's First Nation in Saskatchewan announced the finding of 751 unmarked graves at a cemetery near the site of the former Marieval Indian Residential School. There are many issues uh, that still stand forward or come to the fore for First Nations. We live in a country where entire communities of people are living with unsafe drinking water. Think about that. So what has to happen in 2023? This year, in the spirit of national reconciliation, last year we had the papal visit. Chief Cadmus DeLorme joins us from Cowess's First Nation. Chief, good to speak with you. I, I never know when it's time to stop saying Happy New Year, but Happy New Year. Thanks, Roy. Happy New Year. Back to you. How far have we come, Chief DeLorme, as far as true con- reconciliation is concerned? As we we'll talk on this first weekend of 2023, how far have we come? Mm-hmm. Thanks, Roy. You know, in January of 2023, uh, we all inherited uh, the history as Canadians, new Canadians, generational Canadians, Indigenous people. Uh, we're still at a moment of truth right now. And reconciliation is happening in certain, spe- in, in certain areas. But I do believe that when you think of the floor and the ceiling, I don't think we've hit the floor yet in regards to truth. Every time we tend to be making a step forward, it seems that we take two steps backwards. And it's not one government's um, um, reasoning why are certain sectors. It's the fact that we as Canadians have never been really told the truth to now. So now that truth is prevailing, reconciliation will come, but it'll only come once we truly identify the truth of where we're at in our relationship today. Why is that a problem? You know, this, I, uh, Roy, I'm a proud Canadian. I'm a proud Saskatchewanian. I'm a proud Indigenous person. And I feel every time that we start to talk about truth, it, there's, a, there's a feeling of guilt. There's a feeling of, um, well, I didn't do it. There's a little bit of ignorance. There's a little bit of, uh, um, you know, accepting the truth. And, you know, secondly, it's generational. Our education system kind of set us up for this moment of ignorance and accidental racism when it comes to the truth of Indigenous people and the relationship Indigenous people have with Canada. So the kitchen table across this country, those conversations have to be understood that we kind of got told the difference of not the truth in the past. So once truth prevails, Roy, I tell you, reconciliation will come in all different levels. Chief DeLorme, one of the things that I notice, and I and I notice it right away, I'll, I'll be see, receiving emails in the next few minutes because I mentioned the fact that there are First Nations communities in this country that are still living with the reality of unsafe drinking water. In a first world nation like Canada, that should not only be intolerable, that should have been defined as intolerable decades ago, a hundred years ago, whenever we developed the, the ability to make water safe and pure. And yet it goes on in January of 2023. I believe there's a common sense, a common denominator sense among many Canadians that it's intolerable. Do you, th- what, what common denominator issues do you think exist, which will bring people together, which will make um, the, the, the whole uh, idea of the reality of um, reconciliation come to the fore? Mm-hmm. Every Indigenous person has a nation, a community, a reserve that, that, that they call home. And... Um, you know, some live there, some live in the cities, but it's home. It's, it's, it's a place that you always know is called home. 
And um, nations are 630 across this country. And some are in the more populated areas and some are in the not so populated areas. And so when it comes to what our just human rights are in a, in a country that's a G7, uh, our index is six in the world in regards to living, but we don't actually include the on-reserve living conditions, which makes us 63rd on the index in the world wow. when it comes to many First Nation reserves. And uh, it is a government responsibility. It's the fiduciary obligation of the government. But it's also our provincial governments have to play a bigger role. And our municipalities and local RMs have to play a role. That mentality of First Nations are a federal responsibility, if we don't change our mentality as Canadians on that, we are going to be handing this off to the next generation to address as well. And we don't want that, Roy. I, I can tell in my journey of life that no Canadian wants to hand us off to the next generation. So there is a lot of investment needed. Uh, First Nation reserves are a very beautiful place. There are some denominators that you talked about. I'm going to just mention a few. Uh, is poverty. As a chief, one chief in this country, I manage poverty with my council and leaders, 70% of our agenda. So 30% is spent on economics and, and growth and innovation. And we did inherit something where the mental, emotional, and physical, and even spiritual slash religion of how we address the denominators is is a challenge. You know, you go into the, you see these um, certain court cases, you see the justice system, the social services. So when you're trying to think innovative and economic, but yet the the most of your time is spent on managing poverty, we do seek outside to help us in innovation to get through this together. It is stunning when you say that 70% of your time, yours as chief and your counsel, your advisors, is spent on dealing with the issue of poverty at your First Nation at Calais. That is, that just, that just stopped me in my tracks. Yeah, I, you know, there's, um, there's every First Nation and sometimes tribal councils, and, and there's many different ways that, that approach Indigenous governance. And, um, you know, we, we will get through this, but we got to understand the end goal. What is the end goal of reconciliation and when it comes to um, the on-reserve um, challenge of, of drinking water to, to housing, there is a huge housing crisis in First Nation on-reserve today. And it's, it's parity. Indigenous people want parity while ha- not having our Indigenous worldview picked at anymore. Because one of the things that we got to accept in this country today is that we were built on Western worldview. Today in reconciliation, what that means is we now must welcome in Indigenous worldview. The pie isn't going to get bigger where we can just add on to our Western worldview. We actually have to find ways to substitute a little bit of our Western worldview to welcome more Indigenous worldview. And it's a beautiful worldview. I think that's a missed opportunity this country has had to this point. And it truly is going to make us one of the best countries in the world the day that we can all get on the same understanding of what reconciliation means to all of us. Chief uh, Delorme, again, there was, and I believe, I imagine there's still great fear, great concern about the well-being of youth in First Nations. Go back to what I said before the break. Suicide rates were making headlines not long ago. Political leaders all had uh, things to say, and they were determined to, uh, to improve the situation. But I don't hear much about it anymore. And uh, as I said before the break, I suspect not. it's not because the issue has disappeared. Yeah. The, um, the youth are, are our drivers in our country. It doesn't matter, Indigenous, non-Indigenous. Our, our youth, uh, their, their education system, the driver of hope, and, uh, and, and, you know, Indigenous youth today. We're talking about the first generation that is not raised... Uh, within an institution we now identify as a residential school. We're talking 1996, the last school closed. So our, our youth, are, are, are they have the opportunity more than prior Indigenous generations. But we still have the intergenerational trauma 
of what residential school tried to do, you know, to brainwash the minds, to loss of control in language, in social, in spiritual, in health, in economic. So our youth have a lot on their shoulders today as Indigenous people. They they are making their kokums and mushums proud, as we say in our Indigenous language, grandmas and grandpas, in sports, in education, in social clubs, and uh, whatnot. But a lot of youth, the ceiling of how they see our country is based sometimes on their family and how they're addressing intergenerational trauma. We need a lot of investment today in families to lift that ceiling of intergenerational trauma. It comes in many ways from social services to to youth sports to youth education. The more we lift that ceiling, Roy, the more our Indigenous youth across this country are going to succeed. Chief, one of the key issues for you at Cowess is you've talked about managing poverty, taking 70% of your time and that of your council and advisors. But on a perhaps more broad sense, what are the what are the chief issues for you? And I, I go back, uh, I guess when I talk about Cowess and I talk to you, I always think about the, um, the uh, message you delivered about the unmarked graves issue. What are the issues for you? Uh, Roy, I, I need a whole uh, afternoon with you to, to really identify the issues, but I just wanted to talk about two at this time. There, there's many, and these are not priority, please. There's many, but I'll talk about two. I'll talk about, as Indigenous people, we, we still feel oppressed. As much as uh, the mines and the orange shirts and the, uh, the ribbon skirt National Day that just happened, you know, there is great progress. Please, I don't want to come across as negative here, but there's still oppression happening. Oppression in, I'll give you an example. Right now, the province of Saskatchewan and the province of Alberta, they are frustrated. And in the Western worldview, they are trying to create a Sovereignty Act, a Saskatchewan Act. You know, as a chief, you know, that is, that is challenging because we've been dealing with this oppression or this frustration for 165 years. And, you know, there's two provinces in our country that are, are upset and frustrated for their own reasons. I'm not discrediting them, but, you know, they're pushing forward their laws to hopefully give them more autonomy. Whereas First Nations, we have always tried to uphold our treaties. And one of the main foundations of our treaties is peace, is working together. And so, you know, the frustration as a chief and many leaders across this country is that we, we want to respect this hybrid life that we have today in Canada. But at what point do the rights holders, Indigenous people in economics, and how do we make sure that we are equity partners so that we could use our, our profits to invest in our languages, to invest in our, our intergenerational trauma? The fiduciary obligation will always have to happen from government. But, you know, we have to go back to the Constitution of Canada, Section 91 and 92. That is 100% Western worldview. There was no Indigenous involvement. And so, you know, as we are moving forward, where does the rights of Indigenous people fall in our Constitution today? It's not just Section 35, but we have to address some very colonial parts. And so that's one. The other one would be internal in the, in the nations, in the, on the reserve, is... Um, with the unmarked graves, it's validation of the pain and frustration and anger many are facing as Indigenous people. Secondly, the pandemic, the mental and emotional state that that has put many on reserve and most likely off the reserve as well. But I'm just going to focus my comment to on reserve and I'll finish off in 20 seconds here, Roy, is the, the challenge of really what we inherited as Indigenous to Indigenous. We've kind of become our own worst enemies at time today. And we kind of have our own truth and reconciliation we need to do, not the 94 calls to action that the residential school survivors ask of Canada, but Indigenous people, we kind of have our own truth and reconciliation. It's almost like an adding of forgiveness in there. And that is the challenge that leaderships face that elders face, that youth face. We're going to get there, Roy, but we need investment so we can do ours as well. All right, so 
Whenever I talk about COVID, the emails begin. All I have to say is COVID, and the emails begin. You can suggest something. Listen. There's a lot to be. There's a lot to be said. There's a lot to be heard. And there are some tremendously gifted and educated and experienced people in this country who have a lot to say about it and who know about it. And one of those people joins me now. And we're going to be speaking with, for the next uh, 20 minutes, with Dr. Joseph Blondo, clinical microbiologist and head of clinical microbiology at Saskatoon's Royal University Hospital and the University of Saskatchewan. Dr. Blondo is a globally respected leader in microbiology and has published in excess of 160 peer-reviewed manuscripts. He also is a recent recipient of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee Medal. Dr. Blondo, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, congratulations to you on receiving the uh, Platinum Jubilee Medal. Well, thank you very much, Roy. Uh, it's it's a pleasure to be back on the show with you, and, and thank you very much for mentioning about the medal. It was... Uh, uh, a shock to me to have been notified and a very humbling experience to have received it. So thank you. Well, you've done a, a tremendous job in informing Canadians about COVID throughout our experience with this virus, which just doesn't seem to want to go away. And apparently it's not going to go away for some considerable period of time. And one of the questions we're asking ourselves, and I'll ask you this shortly, is whether this is the time to declare it endemic as to continuing with a national emergency uh, situation or definition of it. But let me begin by, uh, and, and we will, I want to let people know, we're going to be not only talking about COVID here. There are so-called superbugs, right? Superbugs. And they are resistant to antibiotics. And there's a tremendous use of antibiotics. Use it in uh, animals for, you know, that we eat. Um, people go to the doctor and just say, hey, I want antibiotics. The Be aware of this. England's chief public health officer has warned and this is her word now, of an apocalypse should superbugs largely negate antibiotics. And this is one of the areas as well that is a specialty of Dr. Blondo. Dr. Blondo, let's start there with, um, with, with COVID. What do we know about this most recent subvariant, XBB.1.5, and how does it differ from preceding variants? I understand you've had the first cases appear in, in your province in Saskatchewan. We have actually, and um, um, uh, XBB and then XBB 1.5 are, are yet sort of the latest in the Omicron variants uh, that have emerged. Um, XBB, at least at this point in time, the thinking is that that this may have arisen in the in the northeastern part of the United States, uh, and certainly um, uh, XBB is accounting and, and 1.5 is accounting for. Uh, um, the increase in the number of cases that's seen in the U.S. Northeast and along the Atlantic seaboard, and whether or not it will continue to spread westward, uh, and in the the numbers that we currently see, uh, that remains to be seen. Uh, but what seems to be different about uh, uh, these new variants is that uh, they they seem to be more infectious. Uh, they seem to have a and. Uh, we, we need to understand that when we get infected uh, with a virus, um, the virus needs to bind to something in order to initiate the infectious process, and, and that's called a receptor. And we know that uh, through the uh, COVID pandemic, uh, there are certain receptors that are part of the respiratory tract that were important for the virus to attach to to initiate this infectious process. And over the uh, over the, the years of the pandemic, where we saw the original COVID strain and then uh, the various um, variants that have emerged, what we've tended to see is we've, we've seen the virus lose some of its virulence, but it has picked up the ability to be more readily transmissible. You may recall, uh, Roy, uh, in some of the earlier interviews, we talked about this uh, transmissibility factor called an R0. And an R0 is uh, an epidemiological term which refers to the likelihood of one person infecting another one or another person or one person infecting two or three or four other people. And, and so with the, with the variants, we've seen viruses which seem to be more transmissible but less uh, virulent. And in these uh, most recent variants, we've, there seems to be a better affinity for the receptor uh, that's present in the respiratory tract, which means that the likelihood of infection is higher. Now, the good part of this uh, uh, equation, if there is a good part, is that there's no real evidence at this point in time to suggest 
that it's more virulent than some of its uh, previous um, um, uh, subvariants that have occurred, uh, which means that there's a higher likelihood you might become infected, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll have more severe disease. But there's one more caveat there as well. As the number of people that are infected increase, a percentage of those individuals may require an elevated level of care, perhaps hospitalization. And I think we're seeing some of that. We're seeing an increase in hospitalizations, but we're not necessarily seeing as dramatic an increase in in ICUs or mechanical ventilation. So in a long-winded answer, the answer is uh, more transmissibility and perhaps a greater affinity for the receptor in the respiratory tract. So what happens with the preceding uh, variants, the preceding mutations? They don't just go away, do they? No, but if they're out-competed, though, by a new variant, then, you know, for all intents and purposes, um, they will ultimately fade away, if not already, uh, just because they're being out-competed by a much more transmissible virus. Uh, how long they'll remain in circulation, I guess, remains to be seen. But, you know, when we look at data from Saskatchewan, for example, uh, we know that they, the BA5 uh, Omicron subvariant is still the dominant strain in this particular province. But we have seen XBB 1.5 show up towards uh, the latter part of December. Whether or not XBB 1.5 will replace a BA5, that, that remains to be seen. But it theoretically could. And then some of the other earlier variants uh, that uh, we were tracking and, and we still track, uh, we don't seem to see any activity of those whatsoever. So I, I so I think that they ultimately will be replaced by more competitive strains. Okay. Uh, one question that's being asked, and particularly this time of year, is whether COVID has devolved into an endemic health threat from being a public health emergency. Has it, and, and how is such a determination made officially, particularly with the virus continuing to evolve and mutate. How do you decide that it's gone from public health emergency to endemic? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a, a really great question and one that's very, very difficult to answer. I think there are a number of variables that are taking into account, uh, including, you know, the remainder of the global population that are still at risk for infection, including the potential for hospitalization and death, and, and whether that percentage is significant enough uh, to keep this as, as a global pandemic. I agree with you, and I think a lot of my colleagues do as well. We are in a period where this is more endemic uh, than than perhaps uh, the designation of pandemic. And when the World Health Organization will decide to make this um, a decision, you know, to talk about it in terms of endemicity versus uh, a pandemic, I think that's anybody's guess. And I certainly know, don't know the answer to that. But but what does appear to be the case is that uh, I think the immunization program including any new variations of the immunizations that may come in the future, uh, will, I think, remain with us for a period of time. Uh, and and if you look at the national Canadian data, and I would encourage all Canadians to just go on to the Government of Canada website and look this up for yourself, the, the data is really compelling, showing that if you're immunized and have had booster doses, your likelihood of being hospitalized or, or uh, your likelihood of being admitted to the intensive care unit or requiring a mechanical ventilation is substantially less than those individuals that are unvaccinated or those individuals that have only had their primary, that's their first two uh, doses and not had any subsequent booster shots. So, so I think with this virus, there's every bit of a reason to continue to show up to get your booster shots and immunization uh, in order to protect you from uh, requiring elevated levels of care, including hospitalization in the intensive care unit. What you just described and explained as far as the need to continue with the vaccinations and the and the booster shots, there are so many people who will be sending me emails and, 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 and contacting me on social media saying, that's just nonsense, it's not true, it's, it's all, you know, you've heard all the arguments that it doesn't work, they don't work, they, people become ill, people become sick, people die from the vaccinations and the booster shots. What's the, what do you say to that? Look, the, the the severe complications associated with immunization are indeed very, very rare. And 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 certainly I don't want to belittle, you know, the importance of those individuals that have had a severe reaction. But the vaccine program, whether you're talking about COVID or other vaccines, has been extremely successful. Um, and, you know, we need to differentiate between vaccinated and getting infected with a mild infection like a, a cold-like uh, disease 
versus being infected and requiring hospitalization. And and the the, the data is overwhelmingly in favor of, of protecting you from requiring hospitalization. Okay. okay. Dr. Blondeau, I'm, I'm reading something here that um, ran in the UK. The chief medical officer for England, Dame Sally Evans, uh, writes that uh, antibiotics are losing their effectiveness at a rate that is both alarming and irreversible and uh, similar to global warming, end quote. She told MPs to the House of Common Science and Technology Committee, this is from RT, it is clear that we might not ever see global warming. The apocalyptic scenario is that when I need a new hip in 20 years, I'll die from a routine infection because we've run out of antibiotics. So her concern is we may all suffer an antibiotic apocalypse long before global warming or climate change becomes the threat or the reality that the threat suggests. Uh, how, how serious is this? Well, it's really serious, but it's not new. Um, you know, I've been running around the world for the last number of years uh, talking of it. Prior to the COVID uh, pandemic, I've been talking about the global pandemic related to antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Um, and and so, like I said, it's not new. And uh, the World Health Organization has identified this as one of the greatest threats to human health uh, that we will face. Um, and some of the, the estimates are that approximately 700,000 patients a year will die currently because uh, they're infected with a drug-resistant organism. And the estimate is, is that if nothing changes by the year 2050, we could see as many as 10 million people a year die uh, as a result of a drug-resistant uh, uh, bacterial infection. Uh, and uh, this is not theoretical, uh, Roy. We see this every day in our own hospital, in other hospitals across the country. Uh, other countries in this world uh, have much higher rates of resistance uh, for some pathogens uh, than we have in Saskatchewan or we have in Canada. Um, and uh, in, in some instances, we simply uh, will test an organism and we don't have an antibiotic that will work. Uh, and so then we have to look to being creative to try and find maybe sometimes combinations of antibiotics that might work, but that type of testing is not easy and it's not standardized. Uh, but this is a reality. It's not a theoretical concern. And is this because we've become too complacent about the use of antibiotics? We use them for everything. I mean, I've talked to, to doctors who told me patients walk into their offices and the first thing they say is I need an antibiotic long before the doctor ever examines the patient. Yeah, there are a lot of patients who feel that uh, an antibiotic is the only thing that they need. And, and uh, a couple of points here that are worth uh, mentioning is, first of all, antibiotics don't work against viral infections. And so if you have uh, pharyngitis, so if you have a sore throat, uh, in most cases, it's most likely due to a viral infection um, and less likely to do, be due to a bacterial infection. But there are bacteria that cause uh, uh, pharyngitis. And we test for those. And it's a simple test. And you know, if it was positive, then it's up to a doc to decide whether they want to give an antibiotic. But oftentimes, patients feel that they're poorly doctored if they don't get an antibiotic. Yet they are not realizing that by taking an antibiotic, particularly when they don't need it, it actually can be more harmful to them uh, than, than not taking the antibiotic. So these superbugs develop uh, because of the overuse of antibiotics and the bacteria learn, do I have this correctly? The bacteria learn how to adapt and overcome the, uh, the antibiotics as COVID and, and other viruses learn to overcome, in many cases, what's placed in their way. Right. Well, I mean, just as we've talked with COVID over new variants that have arisen as a result of mutations or exchange of genetic material, the exact same thing happens in bacteria. Mm -hmm. uh, bacteria can mutate um, and uh, a mutation can affect the affinity of that antibiotic for the target within the bacterial cell. And bacteria can also acquire genetic material from another uh, species of bacteria uh, and that a new genetic material could contain um, a gene which enables it to be resistant uh, to uh, a type of antibiotic. And, okay. and so similar to what we've seen with the COVID pandemic, uh, this was long before happening in patients with bacterial infections as well, uh, where we can, in fact, select for resistance, if you will, uh, by actually giving antibiotics. And for that reason, 
you know, antibiotics should only be used in those situations where it's deemed to be important. Um, and they should never be used in a situation where they're not likely to be helpful or, or in a situation right. where perhaps uh, somebody does not really require an antibiotic. Daniel Smith, the Premier of Alberta, on the air with us at the beginning of this program. And I'd asked uh, the Premier about the situation involving uh, PS752, the Ukraine Airlines flight, PS752, that three years ago today was shot down, missile attack by the Tehran regime, and the Association of Families of Flight PS752 have held rallies across this country. Today, we'll be speaking with Amir Arsalani from the uh, Association of Families of Flight PS752 victims. And what I'd mentioned to the... Uh, to, to the premier is even though uh, the government has satisfied some of the objectives of the families, um, there's been no designation of the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, as a terrorist entity under Canada's criminal code. The United States has done this, and reports are suggesting the UK will do so as well. But David Lametti, the justice minister, says, says uh, listing the IRGC terrorist is too blunt. Also, the RCMP has refused to launch its own Canadian criminal investigation, with the commissioner saying the case is too complex to investigate in Canada, even though Ukraine asked Canada to engage in a joint investigation. The uh, first weekend of 19, uh, 19 of uh, 2023, and it's the second calendar year of the invasion of Ukraine by Putin and his uh, Russian army. We're joined on the program by Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, Yulia Kovalev. Madam Ambassador, how are you? Thank you for joining us. Thank you, and uh, good day for everybody. I'm just joining uh, uh, to your show um, from the ceremony of the families of the flight uh, PS752, which is now held in Toronto. Ambassador, what is your uh, what is your sense about... Flight 752, Ukrainian Airlines flight, shot down by Iran and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, and uh, still not declared as a terrorist entity under Canada's criminal code. And your government asked Canada to engage in a joint investigation. Uh, it's already the three years when um, when the flight and when the aircraft of Ukrainian International Airlines was also the Ukrainian crew and Ukrainian people on the board was shot by at least two Iranian missiles that hit the, the plane a few minutes after departures. And we're, so from that day till now, Ukraine, even despite the war, even despite the full-scale Russian invasion, Ukraine still continues our investigation and continues working with our partners including the Canada, including UK, including Sweden, uh, to prepare the case uh, against Iran for downing the plane. And what is also important that for Ukraine, it took also, it required to change the legislation. And our parliament this year, even in time on the full-scale war, and we were fighting uh, against uh, Russian invasion, uh, our parliament already made this, uh, amendments to the legislation, and so just a uh, few days ago, the joint statement between Canada, Ukraine, UK, and Sweden was published, and we start the legal procedure against Iran for the downing of the flight. And justice is what Ukraine seeks, and justice what uh, not only the families and the the victims of the. Uh, PS752 tragedy needs. But justice is something that we all need in order to prevent another crime. Yes, indeed. Uh, Ambassador, let me ask about your country. What condition is Ukraine in as we enter this second calendar year of your nation repelling the invasion by Putin and Russia? And you've done so magnificently, but he continues with his missile and drone attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure. What what condition is Ukraine in now? The, you know that the situation in Ukraine is 
not easy. On the one side, Russia has recently attacked uh, all the critical infrastructure and uh, hitting the electricity supply throughout the country. So many people in Ukraine are living without electricity, without the heating, sometimes without the water supply uh, for many hours a day. And uh, the um, what we understand that Russia with those actions uh, Russia wanted to destroy the morality of Ukrainians. And I just came back from Ukraine eight days ago. And uh, I spent there almost two weeks. And even from my personal standpoint, I can reassure you that the morality of Ukrainians is very high. So even without hours, without the electricity, even without in destroyed cities, and I personally visit Mykolaiv, uh, the city which was significantly bombarded uh, uh, from the uh, with the Russian army, and the people are standing strong. Strong. The people are resisting the aggressor, and uh, this is the the situation. When Ukraine is fighting, Ukraine is keep on fighting. Ukraine needs more weapons uh, to keep on fighting and to win this war. And as um, each and every family in Ukraine has this um, New Year wish, and this wish was the victory of Ukraine. And and you, uh, I understand, are receiving additional weaponry from uh, from France, from from Germany, certainly from the United States, and uh, Canada has delivered four M seven 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 howitzers to to Ukraine. You you need the the heavy equipment as well, but your army, your military has on the ground, I think, shown that they can actually defeat the Russian forces. Of course, and I think it was uh, one of the biggest myths and something that a lot of people in different capitals throughout the world um, even were not capable to believe in that Ukraine, much smaller country in terms of the population, but much stronger in terms of the values and beliefs and the courage can actually resist for such a long period of time the Russian aggression and can defeat Russian army. And now we see the more and more announcement of the weapons uh, to be delivered and to be supplied to Ukraine. It's very important and we also do count that Canada will join the recent announcement of U.S., of Germany, and the other countries in sending more weapons to Ukraine, because this war needs to be ended this year with Ukrainian victory. And because this war is one of the major disruptions of the global economic stability, it's also for the sake of people in Canada, in U.S., in Europe, and other countries, that Ukraine won the war. Yes, indeed. And Putin uh, declared a 36-hour ceasefire at uh, Orthodox Christmas, and then he immediately broke the ceasefire. But um, I'm uh, just watching what you've done, and I had the opportunity to speak with a member of your military on this program. It it looks very clearly to me that uh, the Ukrainian military is quite capable of handling the Russians, which, as you said, the rest of the world didn't believe would happen. Many people said, uh, you know, three, four, five days, and it's over. Here it is year number two. Very difficult, but you're proving to the world what the uh, patriotic capabilities and military capabilities of the Ukrainian military are. What would you say to the people of Canada for 2023? I would uh, first of all, I would like to thank people of Canada for the steadfast support of Ukraine. And I would also say, on a personal note, a lot of things in this life we take for granted, like electricity, like heating at home, like being able to uh, take a plane and fly, be, being able to hug your beloved one. I think that... Um, we need to value this. And as my country is going through this horrific war, um, and a lot of things which we took for granted, unfortunately, because Russia is trying to take from us, um, there are the simple things, which is the family, which is the house, which is the love. We need to care and we need to value. And I would like 
to wish everybody a successful new year and a joint victorious year for us. Three years ago today, the world recoiled in horror over what happened uh, in Tehran, or the skies of Tehran, recoiled in horror. As the Iranians, the Iranian um, Revolutionary Guard Corps, fired missiles at a Ukraine Airlines plane, shooting it out of the sky. More than 170 lives were lost, including 138 who had ties to this country. 55 were Canadian citizens. 30 were permanent residents of Canada. We just talked to uh, the ambassador from Ukraine on this program, and Ambassador Kovalev referenced this particular day, which is important, significant, third anniversary, and there have been rallies across the country held by and organized by the Association of Families of Flight PS-72 Victims. You'll find them at ps752justice.com, ps752justice.com, and you can get involved. It's important that we do get involved, and it's important that the world hold Iran to account, and it's being led by the association. Let's speak with uh, Mr. Amir Arsalani. He's a member of the Association of Families of Flight PS-752 Victims. Amir, thank you very much for joining us. How would you describe today? Hello, Roy. Thank you for having me. Um, today was very um, heartwarming day for us. Um, as you know, because of COVID, we couldn't get together um, for the last two ceremonies, um, anniversaries, of course. Uh, but this year, we made it happen, and we were joined by uh, many politicians and members of government, as well as uh, the families of the victims uh, from all over the world uh, and we, we we're thrilled we just it's like we, we have a big family reunion even though we have uh, we haven't met with many of them face to face but today was uh, just an emotional day and condolences to you and and all of the families who lost their family members you lost your sister her husband your one and a half year old niece among the passengers and crew it has to be a terribly difficult still for you to know that Iran essentially has gone unpunished. Now, last year, an Ontario court awarded $107 million to six families, but Iran is not going to be accountable until the world holds it accountable. I'm also curious, um, Amir, about, about Canada's involvement. Mr. Trudeau's government has adopted some of the family's demands, but not designated the IRGC as a terrorist entity under Canada's criminal code, the United States has done so. The UK says they will, or indications are they will. But our Justice Minister, David Lametti, says listing the IRGC as terrorist is too blunt. What do you think about that? Um, I agree with uh, what the government says, because if we if they did put IRGC, the whole group, as, as a terrorist um, group, there would be a lot of people who are forced to do their army service, their military service, which is about two years in Iran, for anyone over the age of 18. And they would be also considered as IRGC uh, group, but uh, honestly, that they, they just own the, they, they're the only people that um, they're doing their service. Uh, they have no ties whatsoever. We know many people uh, who were forced to do the service within the IRGC. It wasn't an option for them; wasn't a choice for them. And unfortunately, like the United States, we don't have that law that we can separate them from uh, from the actual group. That's why. They uh, are still adding to the list of IRGC commands uh, and uh, high officials uh, as we go. Are you confident that uh, the International Court of Justice will hear the case? And and are you? Uh, what has to happen to hold Iran to account? So right now, as you guys know, um, about about two weeks ago they were served uh, with the documents for the uh, for them then and they got six months uh, to reply and um, I, my idea my my uh, say, uh, the, the way I know Iranian government they wouldn't um, reply they wouldn't uh, they, they would just try to extend that six months to an, a year a year and a half just like what they did with the black box but uh, fortunately this is only for six months and they cannot extend that beyond that six months and if they don't reply, they don't uh, cooperate, uh, then the case would go to uh, ICJ, 
and um, they have to be brought um, to justice. Uh, they, they, just like what happened with MH17 not too long ago, they finally, uh, ICJ, uh, put, um, put, put ease on the case, and uh, they did um, find uh, people criminally accountable for the action that uh, was done. Yeah, we've been... and, um, our case is not far from uh, MH17. Uh, the only difference is our uh, Iranian-owned government shut the plane down. Yes. We've seen the character of this current Iranian government, and we've seen it recently in the streets of Iran, as uh, the people of Iran have stood up without weapons, gone out night after night and challenged the government. Many have died for fighting for freedom and for their uh, their rights. Does does the international is the international community, Amir, doing enough? What and and if not, what 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 can and should the international community be doing? They they, they haven't done enough because if they did enough uh, from the um, January 8, 2020, um, a lot of things wouldn't have happened. Uh, what is happening right now on the uh, streets of Iran, um, like the, the, the amount of young people, educated young people who are in jail right now, simply for raising their voice, asking for their basic, most basic rights. Um, so that unfortunately, the international committee, ha- they, they haven't done, uh, they haven't punished them. Yes. So uh, we are thinking, we are asking for all the countries around the world to send back their ambassadors, Iranian ambassadors all over the world. They have to be left alone with ties to no one. Then, then maybe something can happen within Iran. And people who are listening to this program right now can become involved and engaged and support the Association of Families of Flight PS752 Victims, correct? Yes, of course. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 